you're listening to Tiger Country, because sometimes you want a better view than the one you can get from being behind the knife. Sometimes you want your conversations to be more audible than the bleeding. Join Milos Bahavitz, Joan Bowes, and me, Rishi Kundi, as we talk to our guests about trauma surgery, critical care, powerboating, cats, mandolin, croissants, cats, TV shows, cats, and steak. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody, to this week's episode of uh, Tiger Country. Um, as always, I'm joined by my colleague, uh, Dr. Joe DeBose. We are unfortunately without uh, Dr. Rishi Kundi uh, this week. He had to uh, step away today, and we are uh, very fortunate to be doing, uh, joined by Dr. Martin Treiber. Good afternoon, sir. How are you? I am well. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, the pleasure is all ours. So we'll we'll dive right in. Um, now I had our chair of pathology sit in my office the other day because I have a lot of requests for getting individual units of whole blood. And for for students of trauma, whole blood is is not a, a new way to resuscitate patients. Uh, um, but it, it's it's making a comeback uh, in many ways. The increasing uh, utilization of whole blood in, in modern trauma centers feels like it's a real return to the days of old. So for our younger listeners uh, like myself and our up and coming fellows, can you give us a quick history lesson on whole blood utilization and tell us where we've been? Oh, absolutely. I'd be, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, you know, it's interesting. If you go back uh, about four 400 years, uh, people kind of toyed with it a little bit. Uh, actually initially from animals, uh, including goats. Uh, and uh, it's uh, initially when people start doing this, they're always were trying to use whole blood. And in fact, uh, if you go back to about the 18th century, people were trying would try to kill each other by giving a whole blood transfusion and probably were quite successful. The first uh, recorded therapeutic uses of whole blood were actually during the Civil War. And there were a couple of cases during the Civil War of patients with amputations who were pale, near death. Uh, where there's beautiful descriptions of whole blood transfusions uh, given during the uh, Civil War, two of them, in which the patients actually survived and they documented improvements. I think the first large scale use of whole blood was really during World War I. Uh, during World War One, we do have record records of uh, of whole blood being used and it being very therapeutic and much superior to, to normal saline, which was the initial fluids that were being given. Uh, World War II uh, was interesting. Uh, a lot of transfusions in World War II were actually lyophilized plasma. And in the beginning part of World War II, uh, and subsequently, when we invaded the beaches, we did start using whole blood, uh, but our military actually was sort of one of the last to actually use it in World War II. Uh, interestingly, the British were using it, the Canadians were using it, the Russians were taking whole blood out of cadavers uh, and giving whole blood from dead people, interestingly, uh, but it was only toward the end of World War II and we really started using it in our military. Uh, Vietnam, Korea, we use lots of whole blood. Vietnam is, a, is an interesting era uh, where we started to get away from whole blood transfusions. We're using a lot of crystalloid. Uh, but subsequent to that, and we'll talk more about that, I think, later. Uh, uh, again, during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was uh, immense amounts of fresh whole blood transfused as well as low titer O whole blood. And I think that set us back on the track toward whole blood use that we're going to talk about in the modern era. So really, a lot of the whole blood use is sort of dominated by military usage all the way back to the first transfusions in the Civil War and then subsequent wars to that. But, uh, but uh, prior to Vietnam in the 70s, whole blood was what was being transfused as well in the civilian setting. So... Dr. Trevor, let me ask you, I mean, when I was a resident, we somewhere, we lost our way from the use of whole blood. It's very much kind of after that Korean War, uh, you know, period. 
why what happened you know even as a resident i was giving you had to give you know 40 units of pack cells before you gave a unit of ffp was what i was taught as an intern and i'm not even that old you know so um well, how did we get away from whole blood as a trauma community what what sparked that it's yeah it's really it's really interesting uh during the late 60s and early 70s and prominently during the vietnam war we were using crystalloid to resuscitate and uh, this, you know, Vietnam's war is, is essentially when ARDS, uh, Danang Lung, uh, Shock Lung, all of that was initially described because we were using massive amounts of crystalloid. And we lost track of the importance of the other components of the whole blood. Like, so we were very much became focused on resuscitation with crystalloid and PAC cells. And you said four units, I was taught six give six units of red cells before you give any plasma. And I think what happened was we, we were dominating our resuscitations with crystalloid and red stuff, which was just red cells. And components were being used for other purposes in the hospital, you know, platelets for thrombocytopenic patients, plasma for coagulopathic patients. And we sort of uh, developed a philosophy that resuscitation consisted primarily of crystalloid and red cells and we would only give the other components in a massive transfusion situation when the patient was extremely coagulopathic. I think that that resulted in probably some of the worst outcomes we've seen. Uh, we were, I think our mortalities were high. We were having patients in the ICU with uh, multiple organ failure. Uh, patients were bleeding to death prominently. Uh, but I think a lot of this also had to do a lot with research that was being at the time, being done at the time. Uh, this is research that was being done by Carrico and Shires, uh, Canizaro, and they were using a, a controlled hemorrhage model in dogs. And uh, their research, basically what they said in these controlled hemorrhage models, which really don't duplicate what happens in real trauma cases, is that you give crystalloid to replace the interstitial volume while the whole blood is being prepared. And we lost track of the whole blood part of it. And so really we were giving crystalloid and red cells. Components were saved for other patients in the hospital and for patients getting massive transfusions. And I think this was really harmful. Yeah, and you know, the same kind of that late early 70s period, correct me if I'm wrong, we really figured out how to effectively divide the components and they, they storage was longer, right? When you divided them and you put them with the right preservatives, they could be stored longer and they could be used more selectively for things like treating of hemophilia A or B. But now we've created that, that we went and created that pathway, right? By which fractionation was a thing. And then I, I find it's, it's interesting going, and we'll get to a little bit more of this later, is going back the other direction uh, has some limitations as well that we have had to overcome in the re recent era. Um, but but talking yeah, it's interesting. Your 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 point your point about storage is very true to a point, right? So so we can freeze plasma and store it for a year. We can freeze crowd precipitate and store it for at least a year. But the platelets actually, uh, uh, which are in, uh, a very interesting story in themselves, are stored at room temperature and due to the risk of infection, can actually only be stored for five days. Yeah. So we can store platelets in whole blood longer than we can store platelets in a blood bank. So yeah. platelets become the most problematic part of this, even in an era of components. Yeah. So so but definitely plasma and cryo we're storing for, you know, year, you know, at least a year frozen. Yeah. So there's been a lot of talk as as whole blood is making its comeback. There's a lot of talk and I don't think people really understand some of the issues around this this comment of low titer when we talk about low titer products what is, explain to that to the honest what does that mean and and what's the agreed upon value of what constitutes low titer so low titer is referring to anti-a and anti-b antibodies so uh people who have type o blood have anti-a and anti-b antibodies so the key to low titers, if those if those antibody level if those antibody levels are high, then you're going to have a, an acute uh, transfusion reaction. So it's critical that those be low. Now, there is no consensus on what low titer anti A and anti B antibodies consist of. Many centers, ours included, uses one to two fifty six. So that is the titer that is considered low titer 
uh, by the American Red Cross. American Red Cross supplies about 50% of blood uh, in the United States. That is the source of our blood. It's a one to 256. Now, some centers uh, actually define low titer as low as one to 50. Wow. Now the titer of a person of, of a single individual actually can change over time. For instance, if you have a, a, an acute effect infection or even like something like the flu, then your titers can go up. So in a healthy population, like a military population that's downrange, that's not ill and is healthy, essentially all titers are low. And uh, we don't check titers uh, downrange. Uh, uh, young, healthy people without infections have low titers, and uh, and that allows us to use old whole blood, which does have some uh, some antibodies to A and B, but is generally very low. In the civilian population, we will check titers uh, uh, before giving low titer O whole blood, but that is not something that would be done in a fresh whole blood drive in the yeah. military setting. Yeah, yeah. And if you've if you've been to one of those, as you and I have both been, there's a lot going on. That would be a major impediment to, for the actual patient receiving the blood. Um, exactly. So let me ask you this: In 2020, we know that women are unique, particularly those of childbearing age and pregnant women, very unique population. In 2023, now pregnant women may be different. You can speak to that a bit. But in those who are simply female patients of childbearing age who show up at our trauma centers requiring blood, is low titer whole blood appropriate as we understand it in 2023? And if so, are there any other precautions we should take to help mitigate some of the risk? Yeah, great question. And the answer is not everybody agrees on this. Uh, so I'll tell you what we do and many other centers, what, what, what we do. Our, so we receive 20 units of low titer O whole blood. Now this is FDA approved product, fully checked. We know it's low titer, et cetera, et cetera. Now, whatever O uh, negative blood is available, some of those 20 units will be O negative blood. So uh, we do not exclusively have O positive blood. If we have a woman of childbearing age and we do have O negative units available, we will give that to, to that person. However, if they are not available, we will still give the low titer O whole blood, RH positive to a woman of childbearing age. So that's done, you know, these are, these are being done almost exclusively in massive transfusion uh, situations in sick patients, and we feel the benefit outweighs the risk. The risk is that a woman will be exposed to an RH negative will be exposed to RH positive blood, which she will then form antibodies and potentially have antibodies against the unborn fetus. Now, in a situation where we know that we have given RH positive blood to an RH negative woman, we will give them Rogam within 48 hours, which is immunoglobulin, RH positive, uh, RH immunoglobulin, which will get rid of any of the antibodies and uh, mitigate uh, the potential later reaction that that person might have. So standard procedure, we give RH positive to a RH negative woman, they get Rogaine. Great. What? Now other sites won't do it. So they won't give, uh, they won't give RH positive blood to women. I, we feel that the risk outweighs the benefit. I'm sorry, the benefit outweighs the risk. <laughs> Yeah, we knew what you meant. Yeah, well, it's it, it's it's good to know, especially in busy trauma centers where some things may get slipped through the cracks. That it's probably okay to give it and then catch up later with some rogam. Okay, so let's let's create a theor theoretical situation here. Let's say that we we have a hospital that is planning to transition to whole blood utilization as a matter of routine practice how much whole blood do we give patients with ongoing needs? I realize that's a little bit of a, um, a facetious question. And then is there a point at which we transition from giving whole blood or do we just stick with whole blood? Or do we go back to the traditional one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one MTP uh, protocol? How do, we, how do we make that decision? What, what influences that? 
So great question. Uh, number one, uh, I think your real question is, is there a limit? There is no limit. Okay, so we have given uh, in a civilian setting 44, up to 44 units of whole blood to a single patient. There is no limit. The limit is basically how much do you have? There's a little bit of that. And then there's a, the, other, the other question is philosophy. If you have 20 units of whole blood a week that you're going to store for two weeks is what we do. Um, are you going to give it all to one person? So my, my, my philosophy is the person on the table is who you're dealing with and theoretical patients in the future don't come into the calculation. So I give, if, if I've got a dying patient in front of me that I think has the potential to survive, I will give everything I've got. No limit. Now, is there a time when you would change? So yes, I think the time to change is after hemorrhage control has been achieved, you're in the operate, you're, you're in the ICU and you have a specific defect. For instance, coagulation is normal, but the patient has a hemoglobin less than seven. This, we're talking about stable patients now that have been resuscitated. They just need red cells. Or uh, maybe uh, on a TEG, the R value, only the R values elevated, I would just give them plasma. So I think in the acute setting of hemorrhage, hemorrhagic shock, you're doing damage control resuscitation. I'm giving whole blood or one-to-one-to-one. -to -one -to -one. I'm doing tags every 30 minutes and giving adjunctive therapies. Once hemorrhage control is achieved, I'm in the ICU and I've got a stable patient, then I'll go to components to correct specific abnormalities. That's, that's perfect. Um... Unfortunately, you know, in, in the real world, talking to my chair of pathology, we, we still, you mentioned you guys have 20, 20 units of whole blood that last you a couple of weeks. Most so we get 20 a week from America. So American, so you, the way it works is you form a contract with your supplier. You need two things. You need a supplier and a willing blood bank at your hospital. Okay. American Red Cross uniformly supplies low titer O whole blood uh, that is leuco depleted. Okay, they do that across the nation. It is available. 50% of the suppliers are not the American Red Cross and there may be some variability there. But the key is you have to have a supplier and a willing blood bank that will contract with that supplier to provide a fixed quantity of whole blood to your institution. That amount of whole blood is negotiable and based on your need. Do you think that with the clear benefits of whole blood transfusion, and despite the fact that the majority of the products that we have on the shelves are still component, do you think we're going to see a change in strategy of having more and more? I mean, the three of us take care of the demand part. The, the patients keep coming through the door so we can keep using the product. Do you think we will start to see more and more whole blood on the shelves and less and less component? So a couple, I want to answer that a couple of ways. Number one, we have not proven that low titer O whole blood resuscitation is superior to component resuscitation. We have not proven that. Uh, there, are, there are several papers out there essentially all retrospective, some prospective, no randomized studies that do suggest a benefit. There are some that don't suggest a benefit. Uh, these are, you have to realize that in a retrospective or, or a non-randomized setting, patients are getting some whole blood. Yes, maybe it's a couple units, but they might have a predominant component resuscitation anyway, and those patients are going into whole blood groups. Mm -hmm. So we haven't proven it. There are uh, at least two randomized trials starting up. One's called the Troop Trial. Uh, it's an it's actually an NIH grant. It's uh, PI the PI is uh, Jan Janssen in Alabama. Uh, multi center, I think it's eight centers. Randomized trial. You have to have at least eight units of whole blood just to randomize your patient. So we're going to look at large volume uh, whole blood transfusions. And LIGHTS is doing also a pre-hospital trial comparing uh, whole blood to components. So, so randomized trials are, we're on the verge of starting these randomized trials. So in the meantime, 
there is a very significant increase in the numbers of institutions that are using whole blood. As we speak, we're seeing there's several hundred in the United States already, and that usage has grown dramatically over the last five years. So yes, uh, it is becoming more common. Uh, it's, it may be getting to a level where it's almost 50-50 at this point of the major level one trauma centers. I think that these two randomized trials looking at whole blood versus components are going to have a profound use or a profound effect on whether or not that becomes the standard of care, whether whole blood becomes a standard of care. The results of these randomized trials, and you know, I'll give you an example of something like we all experienced was recombinant factor seven. We were all using it. We did the randomized trial. It didn't really show a benefit. We stopped using it. It is possible that could happen. The other thing I want to say is that low, number one, low titer O whole blood is not fresh whole blood. It's been processed. In many cases, it's been LUCA reduced. It's been stored. And there is a storage lesion that affects coagulation and platelets. So you have to be aware of what you're actually transfusing. Has it been LUCA reduced, which reduces platelet numbers and function? And how long has it been stored? So uh, this is not fresh whole blood. Uh, theoretically, it's maybe better than components because you're getting all the components together, but the platelet count may be low. It may be, and the platelets may not be very functional. So this is not a pure uh, black and white win. And that's why we're doing randomized trials. Let me ask you this, uh, Trevor. Um, <clears throat> where do you stand on liquid reduction? What do you think its role is? We, we understand the theoretics behind it. But talk to us from a, someone who's, who's stared at this data a lot and has talked about it a lot from a practical standpoint. Is reduction useful? Is it a way forward in whole blood utilization? Is it a detriment? What, what's your opinion? So I think that reduction is bad. Uh, now, uh, one reason why we do reduction on low titer whole blood uh, is that we store our blood for two weeks. If we don't use it, we spin it and use the red cells. In order to do that, it has to be LUCA reduced. Okay, so that's the benefit. You can salvage unused units. Now, the disadvantage is there is a clear reduction in platelet count and function. If you do tags or rotems on the whole blood itself, there's a reduction in platelet count and function. We compared our experience at OHSU to the experience at Brook Army Medical Center. The Armed Forces Blood Bank does not LUCA reduce. And the blood utilized in San Antonio at Brook is not LUCA reduced. What we found was um, we had essentially the same outcomes in terms of mortality. But at OHSU, with our LUCA reduced blood, we used more blood product overall than they did at Brook, and we had a higher incidence of acute kidney injury. So uh, now, interestingly, if you don't LUCA reduce blood and you store it in CPDA1 solution with adenosine, you can store it for 35 days. And Brooke is using up to 35 day old blood with equivalent outcomes and even better AKI numbers than we have. So I think LUCA reduction is bad. And if you can avoid it, I would recommend you do. We can't because we're getting all our blood from it. We actually asked America, this is, this is great. We asked the American Red Cross, can we not, can we get non-LUCA reduced blood? They should, they said, sure. It's going to cost $500 more a unit. Yeah, so they're going to charge to not do something. They're well, going to charge. Yeah, again, that gets back to the manufacturing. Once you start the manufacturing process and all this processing that goes with the fractionated components, putting that genie back in the bottle is from a large organizational standpoint is a bit challenging. You got to rework a lot of things. Yeah. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. Yeah. So let me let me ask you about this. So if you get uh, we obviously let's say I'm a I am a brand new level two director or level one director, and I'm I am going to bring whole blood to my institution. You've given some great talks that have been really engaging on some of the challenges because you've you've had to fight that fight, and you've seen other and and coached other people through fighting that fight. What are the challenges uh, to setting up? You talked a little bit about the supplier negotiations. But and, and Milos has already talked about his own internal negotiations with his chief of pathology. 
give us, you know, what are those challenges that people can foresee having to come up against and give us advice on how to overcome them? Is it, 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 it Joe, is this more in, in convincing your institution to get the, the, the whole blood or more what to do once you get it? Convincing once you to your institution to get it and, and, and the negotiation with the supplier to, to obtain it. Right. I think, I think the best way to do this is to, what really worked for us, uh, frankly, uh, we had Holcomb give grand rounds and we invited the blood bank and it was a, it was a critical moment. It was a pivotal moment in the, in the decision-making. So I think we all know that within our own institutions, our voices are sometimes not heard as much as if you bring in external consultants. That's interesting because here at Austin, I, I understand they got it after you came and gave your grand rounds. That's what I'm talking about. See, yeah. this is, you bring in the <laughs> external guys and everybody, oh, look, the external guys here, they're great. But I think presenting data, objective data from external representatives, uh, making your blood bank aware of what's going on around the country. Uh, you know, it's interesting, once you bring it, the blood bank is the one who loves it the most. Because all of a sudden, when they're comparing your boxes of blood for massive transfusion, they're putting five or six units of whole blood right out of a refrigerator into a box instead of six units of red cells, six units of plasma that has to be somehow thawed, and a unit of, of platelets. And they're saying, wait a minute, six, six bags of something out of a refrigerator versus 13 bags of stuff coming out of a freezer and that's at room temperature, guess what? The blood bank's the first one that loves it. Yeah. I sometimes wonder if we should, the blood, you know, if we can get a blood banker from a place that's already adopted it, like, you know, Portland, and then you bring them over to some place and say, of course you would want to use this. I mean, blood bankers talking to blood bankers seems to move the needle more so than sometimes in the trauma surgeons talking to blood bankers. I, I agree. I really agree. And I think that it's funny. It really is funny. The, the people who love it the most are the blood bankers. It actually, to them, uh, logistically, is so much vastly better because you've got to, if you're going to do components, you've got to work some magic with your plasma, right? To keep up with a high tempo, massive transfusion. Red cells are uh, out of the refrigerator. You can get massive amounts of it. But how do you keep up with the plasma if you're using FFP? If you thought, if you take FFP and thought, you can only store it for five days. Now you have a massive waste. Yeah. Now you can use liquid plasma that can be stored for 26 days and big places like ours is exactly what you should do. But if you're not using liquid plasma that's never been frozen, you've got a logistical problem to keep up with the plasma. Yeah, well, and we haven't talked about life lives, but that's for another, that's for another podcast because I know you could go on for a long time about that as well and the potential values. Let, let me ask exactly. you, we've danced around the in-hospital piece a bit. Let's take one step further out. You can get more controversial, so to speak, in terms of comfort level and the number of centers that can logistically support even this and talk about the pre-hospital environment. What you've been uh, integrally involved with some centers who've adopted that. What, have been, what were the barriers they had to face and the challenges when you're thinking about the pre-hospital utilization of some of these products? Lessons learned, not only from the US, but from the UK and other places. So great question. Um... The best system I know for this is the, San, the Southwest Texas system, uh, which is you know, the San Antonio region. They've developed a program called Brothers in Arms. So what do you need? Number one, you need a steady supply, right? You need a steady supply of blood products. And the problem is that if you're putting it pre-hospital, there's very fragmented use or, or uh, irregularly unpredictable usage, right? So you need a ready supply, but then you need a system by which you rotate products out of the pre-hospital setting to the high-use centers. And this is what they've done in the Southwest Texas region is they have a Brothers in Arms program. They have thousands of donors who are routinely uh, donating whole blood. And they use low titer O whole blood. It's not leuka reduced. And they, uh, they start by rotating it in the pre-hospital setting. So they're putting on ambulances, helicopters, rural trauma centers. If those products are not used in those settings, which in many cases they rarely are, they, they rotate them back to UTSA and Brook Army Medical Center and the big trauma centers and, and their, their uh, wastage rate is about one or 
So you need a regional system that includes a steady source of donors and a way to uh, rotate the product as it ages. And they wait till it's about 13 or 14 days old and then they rotate it back to the level ones. So what you really need is a regional system. And that's what's been developed. And I think it's the ideal system. It's been published. It shows uh, there are data from that system that show increased survival uh, in the emergency department in patients that have received that whole blood. Um, so you need a system. The real, the real question is, when are we going to get to the threshold blood in the civilian setting? And that's what I'm pushing for right now. Um, that's going to come with some risk because if you're using blood from one person to, that's going directly to another, you're not going to be able to completely get rid of the transfusion transmitted disease risk, and it will not be an FDA uh, approved product. However, if you're going to run out of blood products, and we, we saw this during COVID, we were at risk on several occasions of running out of blood products. I think patients, everyone would pretty much agree they'd rather get something than be allowed to just die. Yeah. And there were ethicists during that period that were asking, you know, you need to set a maximum. You can give six units of blood and then you got to go on to the next person. Now, I didn't let that happen, but I'm, I'm betting that you guys had something similar going on. But if you start to talk about triage and deciding who gets blood, I think that a whole blood program now becomes very, very important. I mean, we certainly... Uh up here in, in Northwest Texas. We struggled with that a lot where we're isolated. It's it's here or it's Albuquerque or it's down in Austin with the boss or over in Fort Worth. And when the blood stopped coming, we were, we were in a bit of trouble. Um, we've espoused some of the potential benefits of whole blood and, and you just kind of right there touched on some of the potential issues. If we are gonna shift to whole blood use, what do you see the, the major problems that are going to come our way? So I think, I think the issues with the current product, uh, particularly the Luco reduced product, which is probably the majority of it, or at least half of it. Um, we've, what we've seen is that when we put our uh, Luco reduced whole blood through a Belmont infuser, right? So we're using uh, rapid infusers in our resuscitations and warming blood. What we see is uh, a drop in platelet count from about 70. So we, we've actually done this experiment where we took 14-day-old uh, leukoreduced whole blood units, took a sample, ran a CBC, and ran a TEG, ran the blood through a uh, rapid infuser, and repeated it. What we saw was a drop in platelet count from about 70, which is starting pretty low, to 60. Uh, the MA value, which is a measure of clot strength, uh, starts low about 49, drops into the lower 40s, uh, and the overall clot strength significantly decreases. So I think that we need to be completely aware of that. Uh, it's interesting that our value, which is a measure of uh, clotting factor function, drops when you put it through the Belmont. So there does seem to be some activation of clotting in the Belmont, but I think using rapid infusers uh, and platelets are a big issue. So we need to be aware when we're using the whole blood uh, exactly what we're giving. And we do that by doing frequent tags mm -hmm. and then doing adjunctive therapy on top. So we might give more platelets. We've given more FFP uh, even on top of the whole blood transfusion. So it's not a panacea. Uh, we have really just seen a handful of transfusion reactions that have been all minor. And now we've, you know, we've given thousands of units. So I don't think transfusion reactions are going to be a big issue. You know, this is actually an interesting topic is, you know, I've been talking about low titer or whole blood. In our military settings, uh, we were actually uh, using some type specific. So you give A to A, O to O, et cetera. That actually sets up a situation where you can have a clerical error and get a major transfusion reaction. So I think the low titer O whole blood actually is better because you avoid any potential reaction. Um, the other thing uh, uh, that we saw downrange with fresh whole blood was there was at least one case of graft host disease, which proved to be fatal and is an argument to do LUCA reduction. So uh, all the issues I think we're discussing are, are the critical issues. Uh, you know, what to do with the O negative uh, 
female of childbearing age? Uh, what should the titers be? Again, one to 256 seems to be okay, but that's not uh, written in stone. And some people use lower titers. Uh, you know, the, just the concept of, let's say you've got a, type, a patient whose blood type is A, right? And now we're gonna replace their blood volume with type O blood. What does that mean for them when they've stabilized and when they're in the ICU? And uh, it doesn't seem to matter, but I worry about it. Yeah. Uh, so, and then I guess the other question is if all of our blood is gonna go to, go to make uh, whole blood, are we gonna have adequate amounts of uh, other components for our other patients? And the big one again is platelets, right? Which can only be stored for five days. Although we're looking at cold store platelets and hopefully that'll be something that we'll get in the future and we can store that for 21 days. But what's gonna, be, what's gonna happen to our supplies of components if we're gonna shift to a really uh, whole blood based resuscitation protocol across the United States? So lots of issues. Yeah. Yeah, but real real pearls of wisdom to our trauma community on on things to look out for, especially, you know, that like you mentioned, that the whole blood, even though it's got everything, it doesn't mean you can assume your tag is going to be perfect. So checking that frequently and making sure you are resuscitating appropriately. This this last question, really for for both Dr. Schreiber and Dr. Debose, sort of selfishly on my part, one of the things that I think I really struggle with is over resuscitation and kind of pulling that handbrake to make sure that we don't swing too violently in the other direction, because I've had plenty of young folks go into some right heart failure, especially with these large volume resuscitations of whole blood. Any, any pearls of wisdom about how to not swing violently in that direction? I, I look forward you know, to it. Go ahead, go ahead. I said, no, I no, go ahead. What you say about it, Marty, but I, I've seen, you know, this level, you talk about the, the power infusers, right, that we use. And, and I came from an institution that was a large volume trauma center, did not have the power infuser. And I, I've moved now to an institution where the power infuser is right there. And what I have found is that it, I have come to value it very much. I Listen, my, they don't call me Deboa for nothing, right? I was a Reboa guy. And a lot of it, I think, was centered around the inability to get blood fast enough into the patient. But that, that is a, absolutely Milos, a double-edged sword, because you, I've seen, especially with open thoracotomies, the heart gets so distended because those some of those infusers can put in a unit like in 20 seconds, right? Mm -hmm. And you continue to, you, you lose, you're trying to control the bleeding, you lose sight of the nurse who just keeps pouring in blood, right? And you, so you get, you get an over-distended heart. I, I don't think you see the systemic effects like you did in the era of crystalloid, regardless, but that over that cardiac over distension, I've had to vent a few atria just to get the heart back to a condition in which it could beat. Um, I don't know what. So it's, it is a double edged sword, something you be mindful of. I mean, give, giving the blood rapidly is one thing. Giving it in overdrive is oftentimes not as useful and can be detrimental. Uh, what do you think, Marty? Uh, I mean, I, I could I could not agree. I violently agree with you. Uh, it's like, it's like I said, you know, you've got six units of whole blood comes in a box. That's about just under three liters. You can put that in a patient with a Belmont infuser in, you know, 10 minutes. And that's a huge volume. And, I, and I'll, I'll give you the example where I have seen patients die because of it. And, and the patients who die because of it are the penetrating injuries to the heart, like, you know, a nice stab wound to the heart. Patients are hypotensive. They're not bleeding, right? They've got tamponade. Yeah. And we're rapidly infusing whole blood into these patients. And what happens is we open the, you know, they've been ischemic. We open the pericardium. Uh, we've got a reperfusion and we're over resuscitating. Their heart turns to stone and they die. And you can't get them back. So we need to be very careful with these massive transfusions, because it's so easy to give massive amounts of blood to patients that don't need it. Uh, so over transfusion, right? I mean, those we see, we remember the ones with the chest open because those are the ones we see that distension. What I can't get my head around is how many of those have I not had the chest open and seen that? You know, yeah, yeah. The same problem. And uh, absolutely. Any role for a swan? Uh, no. Nah, nah. <laughs> None. 
good clinical judgment. The role is for good clinical judgment and caution. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's difficult, right? Everybody's fired up and the, uh, you want to resuscitate and you just, you got to watch it. Well, and use your ultrasound too. I think the the fat, the cardiac window of the fast is super useful. I use that. That's my go-to in the ICU as well for fluid status. And I think it would, in many instances in these where they've given, you turn around and the, the, the well-intentioned support staff has given eight units of blood in three minutes mm-hmm. and, you, and the patient's kind of not doing well. You need to, then if, if the heart is just so distended, it can't contract. What do you do in that fat setting? Like mm-hmm. if I have the heart open, I can vent the atria, I can suck a little blood out. Do we go, are we moving back to the 15th century? Am I actually bleeding the patient just to get them back into a volume status that their heart can handle? So just don't get there in the first place, I think is the answer. Yes, sir. Well, uh, Dr. Robert, I we have posed many clinical questions today to, to you, and you've given us many great answers. But as is our um, license on for this particular podcast, we close always with some random questions. Uh, <laughs> I knew some excellent random questions to give you, but I must confess that I did have a cohort in the form of John Holcomb who provided me with really some fascinating things to ask you today. So I'm asking these not so much to Dr. Schreiber, but to Marty. And um, the first of which I'm going to comment, and, and this is coming from someone, my wife says, all I do is step side to side when I dance. So uh, take it where it's coming from. <laughs> but I have it on good authority that you have some of the most distinctly unique dance moves that have ever graced the modern dance floor. John Holcomb specifically described your expressive capabilities in this regard as somewhere between frenetic and seizure-like. So I ask, <laughs> what is your primary influence in developing this very unique dance style? And uh, what is the ideal dance music to get you on the floor? Well, number one, I wouldn't blame that on anybody. So I'm not going to uh, uh, say that I'm imitating anyone because I wouldn't put that on anybody. Uh, but I'll tell you, I am a product of the 80s uh, in terms of music. Uh, I think the 80s sure. was, was the era of the best music. Uh, and that's when... I developed my dance moves. They haven't changed much since then. Okay. Uh, so admittedly, that's uh, like men without hats, safety dance kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So you got so you got to remember where where so you get a better understanding when you realize where this was developed. Uh, so I was in my twenties at that time, college, medical school, uh, great times of life, uh, and this is where it developed. And uh, I certainly cannot blame it on anybody else. <laughs> Understood. And maybe that's why I do some popping and locking when I'm uh, out on the dance floor. I thought the cardboard around, I might try to roll around on it. Um, so the other story that Holcomb loves to tell is that of, and this is very unique, and it's a long backstory and a, a great story over a couple of years, but the story of you are one of the only people I've known who've had a dual wedding. So tell me how this came about. And specifically, were there any any controversy? Did you pick matching tuxes or cummerbunds? Who got to pick the cake flavor? What? Give us some juicy details. Okay, so first of all, let me just say that I was a fellow in Harborview finishing my fellowship. I was assigned in the military to William Bowman Medical Center. I called a secretary and asked, where should I live? And she says, I don't know. Call this Holcomb guy. So I called the Holcomb guy and he says, don't worry about it. Just come to my house. With no further discussion, I showed up with my wife and all my personal belongings at his house six months later. Someone who wasn't him answered the door, looked at me, looked at my wife, looked at all our belongings, and said, who are you? And I said, and we said, Holcomb said we could live here uh, for a while. And that person was not happy, yelled at Holcomb. And then we moved in for three months. So we moved in there for three months, uh, which turned out to be uh, good for Holcomb because my wife cooked him good food. He was eating like frozen dinners and stuff okay. at the time. So we bought a house three months down the block. And uh, uh, what happened was Holcomb met his future wife at a shotgun wedding of one of our residents. So Holcomb meets his wife at a shotgun wedding. He decides he's going to get married. He goes, we, I'd been engaged for about 13 years at that t- point in time. And he goes, why don't you guys get married? Years. 13, 13 years. 13 years. You'll get your job whole blood in six months, but you won't get married for 13 years. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, we were happy, you know, it's like we don't need to get married. So Holcomb's like, you guys need to get married. Let's have a double wedding. 
So we did it in Cloudcraft, New Mexico. It was our uh, the person of, we had we we got married by the Justice of the Peace the day before in New Mexico, and Kai Johansson, who's a vascular surgeon, he was actually the guy who uh, responsible for describing the mangled extremity score. A mm -hmm. uh, vascular surgeon at Harborview officiated our wedding, and uh, Holcomb married an internal medicine doctor. He says it takes three surgeons to meet to to equal one internal medicine doctor. And it was, you know, it was nice, nice ceremony, not a, not real official. And we did it at the Cloudcroft Inn in, or uh, at, at an inn in Cloudcroft, New Mexico. And we rented out the entire place, had a massive party. We drank about 250 bottles of beer, about uh, 15 gallons of margaritas and 100 bottles of wine. And uh, just had a really good time. And uh, this is, you know, I'll just say, I'm going to, I'm going to put in a word for the military. This is what happens when you're in the military. You meet the best friends of your life that become, you know, lifelong, your closest friends. And you, and you do things like have double weddings for, for, with them. That's what the military does. And, um, I really appreciate my, appreciate my military career for a number of reasons. One of, one of them is I learned whole blood in the military. I learned the focus on hemorrhage control in the military. And um, and I met some of the best friends I've ever met in my life that I'll carry on for the rest of my life in the military. So that's the story. And and you just told us for taping you're going on a honeymoon or an anniversary trip together too, right? So even the that's right. So yeah, that's right. Uh, we're going to the Amazon. Uh, the, the the two couples that got married uh, 25 years ago going to the Amazon to the Galapagos uh, on a three week three week uh, honeymoon. Or, uh, or, or uh, anniversary uh, trip. Well, you might pick up some new tribal dance moves. You never know. <laughs> um, so it's it's all. John also told me that uh, you've long desired to have a gym in your house. I have a, a little mini treadmill gym that I've been forced to put in the garage. You even went so bold as to tell me you would love to have a basketball court in your house, but you found it's been a difficult sell with your spouse. So in the interim, have you been a successful in convincing her? And then what are the key debate points besides not wanting to hear someone dribbling on a hardwood floor one room over from your bedroom? Yeah, so um, the, the secret here is that instead of doing something massive that's a little crazy, you do a little bit at a time. So I bought a treadmill. Then I bought an elliptical. Then I bought a bike which is like a Peloton, but not quite a Peloton. Then I bought a ping table, ping pong table. So I didn't build the basketball court, which would have cost a fortune. And uh, we live on a mountainside. We'd have had to level out the mountain. Uh, and that would have been crazy. But so I just did a little bit at a time. And each one of those moves was acceptable. So I have a gym, but not a basketball court. <laughs> so eat, eat the elephant one bite at a time is what you're saying exactly exactly <laughs> well i'll close on a more somber note i know you are a well-known fan of the ohio state uh it's been some hard times in ohio state football of recent you've had two consecutive losses embarrassing ones to michigan so if, if they called you up as a prestigious alumni and ask you for solutions on how to fix this problem and avoid a third consecutive loss to michigan What's going to be your advice? So, I, you know, I got to tell you, these issues are super, super tentorial. Uh, you know, basically, we weren't aggressive enough uh, against Michigan in these games. We played these games conservatively. They need to be who they are, be aggressive, take advantage of their superior athleticism. Now, the first the first game was there's a snowstorm and uh, our advantage is is fast receivers. Uh, and so that was a little bit of a disability, but the second year we should have beat them uh, and we should have been much more aggressive, much more free flowing, much like we played uh, uh, the, the semifinals championship game. Yeah. Uh, where, uh, you know, we played Georgia, we beat them the entire game and lost on a field goal, but we need to be aggressive. We can't be nervous. We uh, can't be tentative. Uh, and we need to take advantage of our superior athleticism, speed, and ability. Uh, you know, you, it's critical that you, your line, your fronts are going to be are strong. You don't get time to throw if you don't have a good front. We need to build that up better. And our running game hasn't been what it's been. You know, 
Woody Hayes had a heart attack. If you don't, you know, it's, you know, three and out. Uh, we need to, we need, we really need to work on our running game. We haven't had a great running back recently. So I think those are the elements that we can get better, but we showed in the semifinals against Georgia that we probably were the best team in the land. We just, I, I, just I didn't work at Ohio state. I don't know if I'd agree with that one, but you can prove <laughs> wrong this coming year. You can prove <laughs> wrong this coming year. But with that, I, I will personally thank you again for giving your time and, and sharing with all of our listeners, uh, all your polls of wisdom. And I will, Turn over to my uh, my junior partner here, Milos, and the uh, the face of this podcast to take us out. Face face for podcasting. Um, thank you so much, um, obviously to Dr. Debose, uh, Dr. Schreiber. Amazing knowledge of whole blood resuscitation. Some some marriage tips thrown in there as well <laughs> for young surgeons trying to figure out how to navigate that particular problem. I I will say I don't know much about American handball, American football, but I'm always interested in learning. Um, and I'm in Texas. So whenever I say that, I make sure I run really quickly. Yeah, um, we've got a lot of work to do for you, buddy. Uh, <laughs> it's been uh, a while for those Longhorns, huh, Joe? It's been a long time. It's been a long time. <laughs> One last piece of advice. Yeah. If you're going to dance like a crazy man, try to make sure that nobody has a camera around you. <laughs> and with that, I think that is a perfect uh, comment. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us and to our listeners. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Tiger Country, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you very much, gentlemen. You've been listening to Tiger Country. On behalf of Milos Bahavitz, Joe DeBose, and myself, thanks for joining us. And just in case... This doesn't count toward your CMEs, and please don't use this to study for your in-service. We'll be back soon.